Well, open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, which is what I'll be saying for quite a while. I don't know how long, but uh, you may think we're making great progress because next week we're going to kind of do a review of most of chapter 1 and 2 because last year, uh, if you were here with us, we looked at We started in chapter 1, verse 5, and we looked to chapter 2, verse 20, over the course of about five weeks. And we did that in kind of the leading up to Christmas, and I just loved it so much. And Luke has been calling my name for the last year, and uh, and I've been so wanting to come back to this this gospel and and study it. And so we didn't look at verses 1 to 4 at that time, which is the introduction to the entirety of the gospel, Uh, But we're coming back to that. Next week, we'll probably summarize chapter 1, verse 5 to 220, which is quite a feat. But we've done uh, all of those before, and so we're going to try and overview that. So we'll make tons of progress in the beginning, and you can just kind of like a puzzle piece, fit those other five messages into our series here instead of re-preaching all those. Uh, And then we'll pick it up, and and then the pace might slow a little. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, There's so much gold here uh, on the surface for us and even under the surface, so we're going to enjoy this time, I hope and pray, as we study the gospel of Luke. Luke begins in a unique way with this prologue that he gives us in verses 1 to 4. It's very formal. It's very classical. It has a lot of similarities to other works uh, in close proximity to this time period, Uh, of historians who are introducing their work. And Luke sounds a lot like that. And when he begins, it's very formal. This is like one sentence in verses one to four in Greek, and it's very uh, formal in the way he sets it up. And so he's, he's preparing us for what he has written. Luke the historian. Let me start by reading these first four verses. Luke chapter one, verses one to four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why study Luke? There's a lot of reasons. Uh, One is that I wanted our church to go through a gospel within the first five years of its existence. Uh, And I know you'd gone through some of Mark in the past, but not quite finished. And I wanted to preach through a gospel within my first five years here. And so... Um, we, we did First Peter, we've done a number of other things, and, and so I felt like it was, it was time to, to begin this journey. Uh, we may not do this all, we probably won't do it, almost certainly won't do it all in one fell swoop. We'll probably take some breaks along the way to insert other things that are needful to address for our church and other helpful passages, but then come back. This is going to be like the backbone for us for a little while uh, as, we, as we make our way through this gospel. One major reason we want to study a gospel and put this before our eyes, even if the gospel is relatively familiar to you, um, is because everything revolves around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by a proper sight of Christ from the scriptures. 
we are continually sanctified by further sights of Christ from the scriptures, and we will be finally glorified by a sight of Christ that will transform our bodies to be like Christ's glorious body. We are blind to glory, but God causes regeneration by using the preached word and causing us to see glory and so be saved and come to him in an irresistible way that we have to have Christ. And then he continues to put Christ before us such that we, the things we once loved and went after and wanted, we no longer want those. We increasingly grow in our desire for Christ and love for him and less and less for the things that displease God. And then finally, when Christ returns, we shall see him as he is and the result will be, we'll be made completely like him. So everything revolves around a proper sight of Christ. And so no better place and no better thing for us to do than be in a gospel which just puts Christ before us time and again. He is the most compelling person who has ever lived and who does live even now. The person of Christ is what captivates us as Christians. And so Luke sets out to write, so excited to put together his record of the life of Christ. And that's what we want to study in our time here on Sunday mornings. I want you to be utterly captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. And if eternal life is to know God through Christ, then this is the best place we could spend our time. Now Luke, just a few introductory remarks here about the gospel of Luke. Luke is uh, part one. Luke wrote two books. Uh, Luke and Acts are really one work of Luke uh, that are divided. So you have volume one is Luke and volume two is the book of Acts. And together, that makes Luke win the prize for most of the New Testament written. Luke has written more content of the New Testament than any other writer. You'd think maybe it was Paul. Paul's written more letters, but as far as content goes, Luke has all the rest beat. With Luke and Acts, his only books that he's written in the New Testament, they make up the majority uh, comparatively to the other writers. And Luke itself is the longest of the Gospels. And he gives us really the most complete New Testament history, starting before Christ in the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner that the Old Testament said was going to come on the scene first, and takes us all the way to Paul on house arrest, in house arrest in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. And if, some have said that around 35% of Luke's gospel is found in no other source, no other gospel. And who was Luke? Who is this man? Interestingly enough, Luke never mentions himself by name in Luke or in Acts. So how do we know that he wrote it? Well, there's a lot of reasons. It's very early tradition in the church, but as well as other internal evidence, we know he was a traveling companion of Paul's and uh, spent much time with him. In Acts, you'll find that in the later part of Acts, there's this called a we section, not like we, it's fun, even though it would be fun to hang out with Paul uh, in his missionary journeys, except for some of the persecution. But, um, but it is we, like W-E, like 
he's with them. So it starts where he's talking about what they're doing and then all of a sudden it shifts and he's saying, and we went here and we went there and you're like, who's the we? And it's the author and it's Luke who is with them traveling around. But we know um, Luke has a, a very keen fascination with medical issues in the gospel and we know that he is a physician. We learn that Luke is Dr. Luke. He was a physician according to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 tells us this about Luke. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. He's with Paul at this time. Luke is not only a physician, though, and we'll see him comment on things in particular, giving us a little more detail about maybe some of the medical conditions that people had that Jesus heals. He's got a little fascination with that. Uh, Luke is also a historian, though. He loves to place things in the life of Jesus in their historical context. It's a, it's a great reminder to us that, that the faith that we believe, that, that our faith is a historical faith. I mean, he begins chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And so he's like locating this in real space-time history. He's very concerned about uh, getting things right. He's one of the greatest historians, one of the most attacked historians. And so he had to be so attentive to the details because not only in his own day were there lots of eyewitnesses still around who could have said, wait, that's not right. That's not what happened. And so even during his time, he had to be so careful in his writing of history. But even going on till today, he's been attacked by many This is the Gospels are. He was also a missionary, like we said. He was with Paul in his journeys. He's mentioned in Philemon, that small little postcard book. Philemon, just before Hebrews, verse 24. Well, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then in 2 Timothy, this is the end of Paul's ministry, his last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. This is for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So what's fascinating about this is this is likely Paul is in the Mamertine prison, like kind of a dungeon at this point, and Luke is there right at Paul's side. Spent much time with Paul traveling along with him. So he was a missionary as well. He's also a theologian, as we'll see, as he unpacks the theology and has a lot of things in common with Paul. You know how Paul in Romans uh, speaks about how Adam was our federal representative and Christ is our new representative, the, the, the last Adam. Well, Luke, in his genealogy, he traces gene- Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam because Jesus is the ultimate human. He's a new man, a new representative. We also see the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Luke's gospel and in Acts as well. Uh, We see it in chapter 18, the the Pharisee and the tax collector. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And he says, this man went down to his house justified. 
In Acts 13, Paul's preaching and he records a sermon and he speaks clearly about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So lots of similarities we're going to see in Pauline theology through Luke and Acts as well. So Luke is uh, a careful historian. He's also, a, uh, as someone pointed out, a musician <laughs> or uh, a, one appreciative of music because he has uh, probably more than any other uh, poems and, and uh, articulations of truth in musical format, like the Magnificat and uh, so many other places of, of song uh, included, embedded in his gospel. Luke's Greek is also very sophisticated it's the most difficult to translate because he uses so many unique words that are really only used one time in the New Testament. He, he, he was a very intelligent, smart man, able to do this careful research to write this gospel. This begs the question though, why do we have four gospels? Why do we have four gospels? Why not just one? Um, there's one gospel there's four gospels, right? So if you're, this is a helpful distinction to make. The gospel is news. It's the proclamation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There are four gospels uh, or, or accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why do we have these? There's a lot of reasons. Jesus is the most significant man who's ever lived. And so we have some accounts of famous people in history and we have one account of them or not that many. Here we have four distinct accounts given. Luke's gonna say even that there were many other, many accounts, many gospels that didn't survive during his time. There are people just writing down stories that they had heard uh, of Jesus. But here are the inspired records that we have. Not only that, but remember in the Old Testament, the, the statement that every fact must be confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so it, it is like this testimony of more than one witness to, to bear something out. And so here you have four witnesses to the life and ministry of Christ. Also, it is helpful to have more than one perspective to get other perspectives and other nuances to the story. And each gospel writer gives a different perspective on the life of Jesus in not a contradictory way, but a complementary way. And there's many harmonies of the gospel that are out there. I think some of the best are, Robert Thomas has one that just puts them right next to each other. Uh, and you can read each section where they're all parallel and, uh, or there's another one that kind of stitches them together called One Perfect Life, uh, edited by MacArthur. And, and you can just see how the gospels come together um, and how they uh, each have their, their unique um, impact. This is an illustration that's gone around quite a bit, but imagine that uh, someone in your family uh, died in the military serving, and uh, the military shows up on your front door to give you the news and tell you uh, that they have died, and they sit down with you, and they tell you some of the formal details of that, and, and after that, uh, sometime later, one of the fellow soldiers that served along t alongside your relative comes to knock on your door and wants to share with you some of their personal stories about 
your relative. And, and you wouldn't say like, oh no, I already heard. Uh, they already told me, someone already came. I, I don't need to hear your story. No, of course not. Of course you would wanna say, yo, please come in. I wanna hear, tell me about him. Tell me from your perspective. And then another person comes and they say, hey, I had a, uh, you know, experience with him as well. And, and they begin to tell you. And so each of those is going to lend further detail to their perspective. Or even just thinking about going to a sporting event, right? And you go with four different people. And uh, even if you took your family and you go to watch this game. And so the dad is like, statistics. He's telling you all the statistics and and all the different people he's playing. And the littlest kid is talking about the food later. And and the mom is talking about the other mom she saw with a little kid and having a hard time with him. Not even talking about the game. And so there's all these different looks at the same event. And they're all complementary and they fit together. And so, so are the gospels that way. They each have their own emphasis. The Old Testament does something similar, and you have the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. They deal with a lot of the same things. They repeat things, but but that's two accounts. Here we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew was written as an eyewitness, uh, as an apostle. Uh, He was the tax collector, and he writes primarily to a Jewish audience. He doesn't define terms that are related to Judaism, He speaks in very Jewish terms, presenting Jesus as the long-expected Messiah and King of Israel. And that is his main focus in his gospel. Uh, In Mark, we have uh, a gospel that's not written by an apostle, but it's written by John Mark, who traveled with Paul and Barnabas for a while and then deserted, and then he's useful at the end of Paul's ministry again. He writes his gospel Uh, through the memoirs of Peter, most likely. He has close association with Peter, and he writes his gospel uh, as really an apologetic for the messiahship uh, of Jesus, or sorry, an apologetic uh, for for, for Gentiles. He writes primarily to Gentiles. It's kind of a gospel track. It's a very fast-moving gospel. So Matthew begins with a genealogy about Jesus because he's writing to a Jewish audience saying he's in the line of David, Right? Luke begins with this prologue and, and he starts with the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, John begins with kind of a theological prologue about Jesus' divinity. Mark just starts. He's just like, boom, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching and here comes Jesus. And it's like, whoa, this, that was fast. Uh, and, and so he moves immediately, immediately, immediately. And he's just moving you as fast as he can to the cross and who Jesus is. And so he is moving along like a gospel track seeking to evangelize Gentiles. And what he'll do is, when he comes along a Jewish uh, custom or a term, he'll explain it. He'll say, oh, this word means this. Or, oh, this is a custom where they wash their hands. And, and so he's giving you explanation, speaking primarily to a Gentile audience. John wrote as an apostle as well, directly connected to Jesus as an eyewitness. And his main focus is Jesus as the son of God, emphasizing his divinity. And he begins his gospel that way that he is truly God and yet distinct from the Father and the Spirit. And then Luke comes along and he writes to an individual, actually. He writes to a man named Theophilus, who's likely a Gentile and maybe even a early convert who he's seeking to give greater assurance to. But it's to really to everyone. It does have a heavy focus on Gentile inclusion. Luke's the one who tells us about the time in which we're living as the times of the Gentiles. And his gospel uh, continues then into the book of Acts where the gospel then spreads out from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
and uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then it ends in Rome. You begin in Jerusalem and you end in Rome and the gospel is, is going forth to all the nations. Luke's main focus is Jesus as the son of man with a focus on his humanity. Luke, however, was not an apostle or an eyewitness, but he relied on careful research gathered from eyewitnesses. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, maybe you've heard these referred to as the synoptic gospels, the synoptic, in distinction from John, who writes last, and his gospel is slightly different. There's a lot of stories that he doesn't include, and he goes in a different direction with his. Synoptic is, speaks of the similarity between them, uh, that, they are, uh, that they're seeing kind of the, the same thing together. And so there's a lot of similarity in their structure and in the stories they tell. Though Luke does include a lot of material uh, not found elsewhere. A lot of parables that we don't get elsewhere. A lot of uh, teachings of Jesus not found elsewhere. And so it's a very rich gospel. So as we look now at this introductory uh, preface, prologue that Luke gives... I want us to see three orientations to the Gospel of Luke. It gives us three orientations to the Gospel of Luke. And the first is the preoccupation of Luke's Gospel. The preoccupation of Luke's Gospel in verses 1 and 2. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke begins by speaking of the many precedents to his gospel. Verse 1 speaks of the early attempts. The early attempts. He starts in a very formal way. He uses this word, inasmuch. I don't know if you've ever used inasmuch before in a sentence. It's kind of like, although. Although many others have sought to write. Inasmuch as many others have sought to write. They've undertaken this task. They've tried it. They've attempted it. To compile a narrative of the things accomplished or fulfilled among us. He's not, I don't think, uh, critiquing those. He's not saying like, they tried, but I'm going to do it, right? Uh, I think he's, he's just saying the facts that others, many others have, have set out to do this. Apparently, there were many, many accounts written by individuals during this time about different aspects of the life of Jesus, It's hard to be definitive, but it's unlikely that Luke is thinking about the Gospels that have come before him, Matthew and Mark. And the order of their writing is most likely Matthew wrote first, then Mark, and then Luke, and then John. So the order uh, that is written. That, Matthew was accepted as the earliest Gospel written until about the 1900s when uh, German higher criticism came along and started to question everything. And they discounted the early church and that long tradition of Matthew. And they came up with a whole proposal uh, of reordering things. And so you'll read a lot of times people uh, speak about Mark writing first and you're like, why does that matter? You know, talk to me afterward if you're curious. But it, it really, uh, the, the, the thing that Luke is saying is he's not so much talking about others because what he's going to, about Matthew and Mark, because he's going to say they were getting their information from eyewitness testimony. And Matthew is an eyewitness, so he doesn't need eyewitness testimony. He was there. He is an eyewitness. Uh, so here we have these early attempts and this is so close to the events that you can imagine this would be the case. I mean, if you had been there and you had seen Jesus, 
I mean, wouldn't you write that down in your diary? And if you keep a diary, you know, right? You know, what happened today? How are you not gonna write down uh, what happened when Jesus heals this person or casts out this demon or teaches something that speaks like no one has ever spoken before? Of course, there would be many accounts of this. Now, of course, none of these other narratives were preserved for us. They didn't last. We don't have any of their copies. What we do have are the four gospels that God has inspired for us to have the authoritative record of the life of Jesus that, that God has sought to preserve uh, in, in a way that no other book has been preserved in human history. I mean, the, the amount of manuscripts we have and attestation of these books is unprecedented. Now you might think, well, what about these like Gnostic gospels? These, we've heard about, you watch the History Channel and they're like, oh, the Gospel of Thomas, this is the real gospel. The problem with that is these, those came much later. They, these came after this, claiming to have come earlier. And so those don't even qualify for what Luke is talking about here as early people trying to write things down that they had seen with their own eyes. And those other so-called gospels have so many errors and contradictions with the life of Jesus. It's hard to catalog. So, many are writing about this. Why do these other unknown people compile these accounts, though, what Jesus said and did? Well, because the text tells us they had to do with fulfillment. It says they sought to write down a, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This word accomplished has the idea of fulfillment. It's a fulfillment kind of word. When it speaks to events, it speaks to them being Fulfilled or accomplished, completed. Jesus is the fulfillment, the accomplishment of all that the Old Testament was pointing forward to in expectation, the promises, the prophecies. And he fulfills everything related to his first coming to guarantee everything that he will fulfill in relation to his second coming. What took place in the life of Jesus was the climax of human history and theology. It was the culmination of God's plan. And so how exciting this was when Jesus comes and what he's teaching and saying and connecting things and fulfilling things. And Jesus' fulfillment of these things created quite a stir. In fact, at the end of Luke's gospel, after Jesus is resurrected and Jesus is walking on the road and he encounters some men from Emmaus walking uh, on this journey to this city, to, to the city of Emmaus, and Jesus' identity is hidden from them for this short interaction they have. And it says this in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word, and before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
And they go on to speak about the women coming and testifying of his resurrection. But, but these guys, they, they see Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus. And they go, dude, where have you been? How do you not know? I don't think they said dude. This is the Greek version of dude, you know. Uh, but they're, they're like, how do you not know what's been going on here? So there's quite a stir about what Jesus was doing. You know, they send the guards at one point in John's gospel to arrest him. And they come back without him. And they're like, what happened? Guys, you didn't arrest him? And they're like, no one ever spoke like this man. That's like their answer. No one spoke like this man did. They just, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't, I don't know what happened. We just, we were so compelled. He was so captivating that it just moved people to write. There's something about a great story that excites us to tell it to others. I mean, sometimes it's even a, a good joke and you, oh, I, want to tell, I want to be the one to tell it. Or a great story, oh, we just love to share stories and tell stories. There's times when I'm reading my Bible and I think, I can't wait to tell this to the church. They're gonna love this. It's just, I get so excited because you get helped by something. You, you, you just so get captivated by the, the word of God and you wanna communicate it to someone else. And that was what was happening. There was quite a stir. These people wrote because they were so captivated by the person of Christ. He is so compelling. There was a preoccupation with the person of Christ that propelled people to put pen to paper. John Piper uh, draws out a, the admiration for Christ that believers have as he reflects on a Jonathan Edwards sermon on the glory of the person of Christ in his majesty and his meekness. In other words, that he is the God-man and that part of our captivation with the person of Christ is that it's this, it's this perfect mix of his deity and his humanity that just so captivates us. He says this, we admire Christ for his transcendence, but even more because the transcendence of his greatness is mixed with submission to God. We marvel at him because his uncompromising justice is tempered with mercy. His majesty is sweetened by meekness. In his equality with God, he has a deep reverence for God. Though he is worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. His sovereign dominion over the world was clothed with a spirit of obedience and submission. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom, but was simple enough to be loved by children. He could still the storm with a word, but would not strike the Samaritans with lightning or take himself down from the cross. Luke shares this preoccupation with the person of Christ. And so he cho chose to write as well. He, after speaking about the many attempts, verse three, it seemed good to me also. It seemed good to me also to write, to put my account down. One a commentator tells a story of a doctoral student writing their thesis, and they chose their topic uh, as a missionary to the Congo. And uh, someone who no one had written about, uh, and so the student was kind of losing steam in the project, not really motivated to finish, and said to one person, I, I just don't like him. <laughs> I just don't like him, like the person he's studying to write his thesis on, this missionary. To which the person speaking to him later wrote, quote, it is this quality of being in love with your subject that is indispensable for writing good history. Hmm. You know, when you've read a good history, a good historian, they're so captivated by their subject. 
they are really interested in it and it bleeds through. Luke, the historian, is so captivated by the subject of his gospel. He is so overwhelmed with a preoccupation with Christ. And so in verse one, we see these early attempts that he speaks about and the focus on the accomplishment of what Christ has done. Salvation accomplished and the stir that that brought. We also see in verse two that he explains to us the entrusted apostles. The entrusted apostles. Look at verse two. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Who is this group that he's referring to? It is certainly possible that it refers to two different groups, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, but I lean to the, to the fact that it's probably referring to one group, one group described in two ways, that they were eyewitnesses and servants or ministers of the word, and this describes well the apostles. They were eyewitnesses from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That was one of their qualifications. They had to be there from the beginning, especially the baptism of beginning as public ministry and then continuing on. And then they became ministers of the word. This word eyewitness, it, it just means to see or observe with your own eyes. We actually get our uh, English word autopsy from this Greek word, autoptai. And it's really, you're just observing. You're looking with your own eyes, observing. He uses this term to, to show his readers that what he and others have written comes from those who were directly associated with them. This is authoritative because it comes from these eyewitnesses, these apostles. These are tasks that were given to the apostles. I'll show you Acts chapter 1, the way he describes them, the apostles. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. It says, so one of the men, so he's talking about replacing Judas with Matthias. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the idea is they were eyewitnesses. They were there from the beginning at the baptism of John and they are to become a witness. Those are the two things that Luke is saying, that these people delivered these things to us. They told us about Christ and they were eyewitnesses from the beginning and they were, became witnesses or, or they became servants, ministers of the word. Luke continues to do that through Acts, but I want to show you a place where John speaks in this way as well in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, here's how he begins his letter. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. It's like our eyes beheld, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so John is saying, we saw him, we handled him. 
We touched him. And we then bore witness about him. We are announcing to you the message about Christ. And so that's what Luke is saying about these people. Just as those who, from the beginning, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, were eyewitnesses, they saw what he did and heard what he said, and they became ministers of the word, servants of the word. They've then given us this deposit. They've entrusted us with this message. They've delivered them to us. And this word delivered, it's like an entrusting term. It's a technical term used often for describing the passing on of an authoritative tradition. It comes with authority. And so they have passed this on. Now, in saying this, Luke is saying, I'm not one of these eyewitnesses. I'm not one of these guys. But I'm relied upon their testimony. They too were overcome with the preoccupation uh, with the person of Christ. And they gave their lives to passing on and passing down the message about Christ. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And they were just so committed to making this message known, to not adding to it or subtracting from it, but giving it faithfully. Makes us ask the question, am I preoccupied with Christ? Is he my preoccupation in life? Like he was for Luke, like he was for those who had seen him and heard him, like he was for the apostles. Have you been so taken up by the person of Christ and his work? Can you say, like those who heard his teaching, no one ever spoke like this man? J.C. Ryle says this, let us aim at greater simplicity in our own personal religion. Let Christ and his person be the son of our system and let the main desire of our souls be to live the life of faith in him and daily know him better. This was St. Paul's Christianity. To me, to live is Christ. So this is the preoccupation of Luke's gospel. And so let's say that, man, I just, he is not where I am. I just, I want him to be. Well, then good. Because Luke's gospel is for that very intent to Help us to see the glory of Christ so that our preoccupation would become, that would become our preoccupation. These stories that so made Christ a preoccupation of his disciples are what is recorded for us here. So that's the preoccupation of Luke's gospel. Notice secondly, the precision of Luke's gospel in verse three. The precision of Luke's gospel. Verses one and two describe those who came before Luke and wrote. Verses three to four describe Luke's own writing of his gospel, both his process and his purpose. What was the process that he went through in this? And then why did he write? What was his main purpose? Verse three shows us his process. Verse three says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke, having explained his desire to write, he tells us how he went about this. He gives us his credentials. And he really gives four descriptions highlighting the precision of his gospel. Notice these descriptions that speak to his credentials and his precision. First, he says, having followed. Having followed. This speaks to his research. The idea is tracking down the information. A good word would be investigated. Having investigated all things closely. Luke looked into all the written accounts available to him. Luke looked into the oral uh, traditions 
that were around. Luke talked with many of the apostles, no doubt, who had the Holy Spirit's enablement to remember the things Jesus said and did, according to John 14, 26. And so, he, he's, I mean, he has like around two years at least with Paul at one point, and probably more than that, where he can just interview and talk to Paul. He has interactions with John Mark. He has interactions with Matthew. Uh, there's, there's many indications that he would have had much opportunity to speak to these men about their experiences. And so he traces it down. And he just makes you speculate a little bit. Who, who did he talk to? Maybe he talked to Mary. It says in Luke, uh, in, the, in the chapter one, Mary, or maybe chapter two, that she treasured all these things up in her heart, right? How does he know that? Maybe Mary told him. This was, this is what was going on in my heart. It was just, it was so precious to me. And so he, he writes that down. He has such detail in the birth narrative of John the Baptist and of Jesus. He did his research. He, he, he talked to these people. Maybe he went to someone who got healed by Jesus. Hey, tell me, what was your condition? What was, what was going on? Or maybe he talked to their neighbor. Hey, tell me about so-and-so. I'm doing a little research here. And he's just going around. And he doesn't have the internet. He can't look up stuff. He can't even store stuff on a computer. I mean, he's going to scrolls. He's going to places to read documents. He's going to talk to people, write these things down. This investigative work, investigative journalism. And doctors are trained to ask good questions. Now, one of the things I find fascinating about the, the pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones in England, was he was a doctor, and then he became a preacher. And he was so great at asking questions of the text of Scripture, and as he did soul care with his members, asking them good questions to see what was ailing them and bothering them and concerning them spiritually. And Luke is like that. He's a doctor. He's, he's great at asking analytical questions and getting to the, the root of the matter. And so as he goes around, he would have been a great interviewer, asking the right questions and gathering information so that he could write his gospel. He gathers all the information so that he can then write his account. So first, he investigated. He, or he followed, or he, uh, having followed. But no, he says, having followed closely. Closely. This means he was accurate in his investigation. He did quality research. This wasn't shoddy. He was very meticulous. And then at third, he says all things, all things, everything. He traced it all out. He heard a story about Jesus. He went and found out, was it, was it something that was true or not? Could it be substantiated? It was comprehensive. It was thorough. He didn't leave anything out of importance. And then fourth, it was from the beginning. It was from the beginning. Seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. Now, ESV has decided to go in a different direction on this and speak about the length of time that Luke wrote, but it, it seems better to take it the way a number of other translations do, where it's from the beginning. And the idea here is from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and really not even beginning of his ministry, but even before that, because Luke's gospel begins with this long section about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And so that is what he means by from the beginning. I'm just taking you all the way back. I'm gonna connect the seams of the First Testament and the Second Testament. The the First Testament ends with this expectation of a forerunner who's gonna prepare the way for Messiah. And then here comes Luke saying, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about his parents. Let me tell you about how he came to be born. 
And then let me tell you about the birth of Messiah and his, some of his childhood even. And so he, he just begins, goes all the way back to the beginning. All this care and research is instructive for us in how the human authors were inspired by God to write what they wrote. Sometimes we think of, or we can think of, and many people do, think of how, the, how we got the Bible, the doctrine of inspiration, how God moved men to write. And they think about it sometimes like a dictation. Now, God can do that. And uh, it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. It's just like straight up, here it is. But that's not often how God communicates his word. It wasn't as though he was saying, Okay, Luke, are you ready? Sit down, get a piece of pen, uh, get, a, get a pen, get a lot of pens, you know. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do this once, you know. In as much, in as much, as, as, many, many, right? It's like, that's not the way this worked. Uh, and, and so we can't discount the fact that God would direct in his providence Luke to do all this research and use that in his writing of the gospel and yet at the same time, have that be the means by which he gets every single word exactly the way he wants it. And that is how inspiration works. B.B. Warfield wrote this about the divine and human authors of scripture. He says, the whole of scripture is the product of divine activities which enter it. However, not by superseding the activities of the human authors, but confluently with them. So that the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point working harmoniously through to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, every word, every particular. So God's providential working would create, I mean, this is hard to even fathom, that Luke's life from the beginning would be so orchestrated that God would, would prepare him for such a desire to write every single word he would want to write. And so he preserves here, he, Lucas were doing exactly what he wants in writing, and yet God is getting exactly what he wants at every word, down to the words and the grammar, and it's exactly. I mean, that is just amazing, the providence of God in orchestrating those things. That is how God gets exactly what he wants. One writer said this, inspiration does not negate perspiration. Right? Luke had a lot of sweat put into this gospel. He did a lot of work, a lot of research, and yet it does not discount the fact that God was moving him along and even bringing along the sources that he would need and having him do this careful research to get exactly what he wanted. God providentially prepares his people to put down precisely what he pleases. But not only is Luke's account accurate, but it's also accessible he says that he set out to write an orderly account, an orderly account. Now, Luke is not using this, this phrase to mean like a strict chronological order, though his gospel is very chronological, but rather the idea is like systematic or sequential. Luke wrote his gospel in a very logical way, but also a very geographical way as he traces Jesus' ministry from Galilee and then to Jerusalem. And it generally follows a chronological way. The point is that Luke's content is easy to follow. It's given in a clear way. It's, it's not only true, but it's readable. It's readable. It's packaged in a way to help us. Maybe you like to read Kindle books. Uh, I like hard, cop, 
cover books. It's just, I like smell books. It's like, oh, the book. You know, you get a new book. You just love to crack it open. But I also do like to read on Kindle. And uh, it's, it's really helpful. And one of the really helpful tools they have is the x-ray feature, right? Sometimes you can put your finger on a, a, a character, especially if you're in a longer novel and you're like, ah, who's this character? I know, I think I know this name. You click on it, it'll give you a little paragraph telling you about this person. And it's like, oh yeah, that's who they are. Okay, good, keep on reading. And, and it just like reminds you of who they were. And Luke kind of does that. A, a good example of this is in chapter three, verse 20 with John the Baptist. He's talking about John the Baptist and he's, he's preaching in the wilderness. And in verse 19, it says, but Herod the Tetrarch, um, Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And then verse 21 continues on. Now, when all the people were baptized, and this is back to the baptism. So it's like this interlude. It's like, that didn't happen right then. He's not in the wilderness and all of a sudden, oh, he gets arrested, but now he's baptizing. No, it's like he's saying, okay, John the Baptist, let me just pull some information over here that happens out of order, but just to give you some more information about John the Baptist. So it's a systematic kind of way. It's also geographical. He's following Jesus' ministry in Galilee and then to Jerusalem. And so it's very orderly in the way that he does it. John MacArthur writes this, a good theologian is analytical, logical, and systematic. His goal is to persuade people to understand and accept doctrinal truth by means of a thoughtful, logical, progressive, consistent, persuasive explanation. That's exactly what Luke does. It's not enough sometimes to just give the right content. No, that's good. That's the most important. But we ought to be concerned as well with the packaging as well. That has something to say about it. And so Luke is careful in his packaging even of the information. Now, I think this is a helpful point to just point out, a uh, helpful time to point out the order of Luke's gospel, uh, kind of an outline for you. And there's lots of these from complex to simple. Let me just give you a very simple one that I think you'll remember. If you go to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, many have seen this as like the focal point of Luke's gospel and a helpful outline for Luke's gospel. So maybe you'll remember it. Luke 19, 10. Luke 19, 10. It says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And this becomes then the outline for the book. For the son of man came. That's Luke 1 to Luke 3. Luke 1 to 3 is the son of man came. It's his birth. The preparation by John the Baptist in his early days. Then he came to seek. Son of man came chapters 1 to 3, to seek, chapters 4 to 21. Came to seek his people, first in Galilee in chapters 4 to 9, and then in Jerusalem in chapters 10 to 21. And then finally, to save the lost in in chapters 22 to 24, as he goes to the cross and is resurrected to to provide redemption for his people. So the Son of Man came, 1 to 3, to seek, 4 to 21, and to save the lost, 22 to 24. Who is this gospel then addressed to? Well, he says it's to this man named Theophilus. This is not an imaginary figure. This is a real man. He's mentioned again in Acts 1.1 when Luke introduces volume two. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. R.C. Sproul said, he has the awfulest name in scripture. Ha ha ha. Theophilus. Ah. All right, his name means lover of God or friend of God. And he may have been something a high-ranking Roman official. Why would they think that? Well, this term most excellent is used by Luke in Acts to refer to Festus and Felix. It's the only other times it's used. And they are Roman officials, Paul standing before. And so it's possible he's, he's in that position. Everything we know about Theophilus is totally conjecture. Uh, but he seems to be of some prominence because of this title that Luke gives him that Luke, Luke later reserves for Roman officials. And Theophilus is in the same position that we are in. We are not eyewitnesses of Jesus. We rely on the testimony of others about his life and ministry. And so he writes here to Theophilus. And so this is the precision of Luke's gospel. Next, we see that the purpose of Luke's gospel, finally, the purpose of Luke's gospel in verse four. Look there, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So this phrase, have been taught, it, it, we get our word catechism from this. Uh, it could just mean generally that he was instructed or he, he just kind of had information um, or it could mean that he had become a Christian and been instructed in theology and the teachings about Jesus. And I, I lean that way because the other time that this phrase is used, have been taught, is use of Apollos in Acts 18.5, same author. And remember, Apollos was a Christian, but he just needed some more instruction to be a little bit more accurate. And so Priscilla and Aquila come along and say, hey, let me teach you a little bit more accurately the way. And this is a great example of discipleship coming alongside and saying, hey, maybe it's better to say it this way instead of that. And so he's a believer. I think it's fair to say that Theophilus has, has heard about Christ. He's been taught and instructed because he's a Christian, but Luke wants him to know with greater certainty. And that is his aim and purpose in writing. It is certainty, or we might say assurance. This is a fascinating word that he uses when he says you may have certainty. This word certainty actually in Greek ends the sentence. It's the last word that's used for emphasis. We, we front it a little bit more in English. It's the word asphalion. And it, it, it has this idea of, it's used in some context of a prison being locked securely. It's used, uh, Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, of peace and security, he uses it. And so this idea then is assurance. It's a certainty. It's locked down. It's to have deep convictions about these things. It is not to just hold these truths, but to be held by these truths. That is what he wants for Theophilus, and that is what he would want for us as well. John Piper talking about this word, he laments the way many people know the truth in contrast to how Luke wants us to know the truth. And he says this, they are known, these truths are known by people the way one knows a cloud, not the way one knows a mountain. Viewpoints about God and the Bible and right and wrong float in people's minds ready at any moment to be blown away by the slightest resistance and replaced by another cloud. It's a good picture of what Luke wants to do for Theophilus. Theophilus, I don't want you to just have thoughts that are like clouds in your mind, that when persecution comes, they're just gonna be blown away and replaced by something else. I want you to have 
mountains in your mind. Truths that are so rock solid deep down are going to settle you in the worst of times and going to give you comfort and hope and confidence. What is your mind filled with? This is what we need for our church, a rock solid mountain-like truth and, and certainty and conviction and assurance of what Jesus said and did. To not only master the truth about Christ, but to, but to be mastered by the truth about Christ. There's really two ways to study the gospel of Luke. You can study it the way that Festus and Felix, most excellent Festus and most excellent Felix knew it. In fact, in Acts chapter 24, notice this interesting parallel. Acts 24, verse 22, it says, but Felix, having a rather accurate way, knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, and he goes on. He had an accurate knowledge of the way. Most excellent Felix. In Acts 26, verse 22, it says, to this day I have, Paul speaking to Agrippa, and he says, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. So there was a knowledge there of these truths, of these facts, but not a knowledge like Luke wants to have. Luke wants Theophilus to have. And so this is the way that he wants him to know the truth. Not in a way that knows it but dismisses it, but that knows it and is changed by it. It leads to a true knowing of Christ. You may have been taught much about Christ, some of you more than others, yet Luke wants you to have a certainty about what you have been taught. And this is what he will seek to do in his gospel. Your certainty about Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about assurance. He said, when you chase assurance, it flies away. But when you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus by faith, the dove of assurance will come and settle on your shoulder. Isn't that good? When you look to yourself constantly, there's a place for that and a time for that, it seems to fly away. Oh, how can I be saved? I don't know, I don't know. Oh, I did this, I did that. When you fix your eyes upon Christ, here comes assurance to bolster your faith, give you certainty. And that's what we want to do in Luke. Luke doesn't even mention his name in this gospel. It's like he doesn't even care. Doesn't, it's not about me, it's about him. And so assurance is increased by looking more to Christ. He saves all the spotlight for Christ. And so what is Dr. Luke's prescription for your weak faith, for your lack of certainty, for your lack of assurance? It's to put Christ before you in all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great gospel. We will endeavor to study. We pray that you would do what Luke wrote for, our certainty in the things that we have been taught, and that it would give us great joy, as Luke speaks so much of joy, great joy in knowing you, 
And Lord, may you draw others to yourself for the first time through the utterly captivating person of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.